Are we on? There we are. Good morning, everybody. This is going to be a little bit different today. We're, we're kind of tacking on some things. And uh, the slide you see up there right now, this is it. <laughs> so uh, most of what we're doing today is a little bit extra because I want to take some time. We're finishing up Samuel, um, but I want to take some time to um, get going with understanding the Davidic covenant and a couple of uh, interpretive issues that go along with this. And I don't have slides for it, but it's just maybe for your understanding and, and uh, hopefully it's helpful to you. So today probably will be a little bit cerebral. And uh, so I apologize for that, but sometimes we have to dig into the word of God in ways that we strain our brains just a little bit. So I, I hope that that's okay with you today. But let's pray and then let's uh, see what the Lord would have for us today. Thank you, Father, for this time here to... Um, be in our Bible Training Institute, Lord. And while we just scratch the surface of the truths of Scripture, I pray that they would impact our hearts and that we would see how faithful you are, how consistent you are, how all-wise and all-knowing, all-powerful that you are. You are sovereign. You are completely in control. Every act in this world is controlled by you, whether good or evil, it all comes from your hand ultimately as Isaiah 45 tells us and as Lamentations 3 tell us. While you do know evil and cannot touch evil, ultimately you use it for your glory, for your good, for our good, for uh, all that you would accomplish in this world. And so, Lord, we continue to try to grapple with these truths of, of your sovereignty and human responsibility and how these work together. We pray, Lord, that this time would be useful, that we would see the consistency of your word and the times where you place issues in tension that we must wrestle with them. Might we respect that and might we honor that, that that was your will. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're still in Samuel and very briefly, we'll just finish up here with the literary structure. And then I want to do um, a couple of uh, interpretive issues and... Stuck right in the middle there, I just want to talk to you about the Davidic covenant a little bit more because it's, it's very important. So I just want to um, talk about it for a bit. So the literary structure of Samuel, First and Second Samuel, it's, uh, it, it very much bookends. It begins with a humble woman, Hannah, who is blessed by the Lord, and it ends with a self-exalting king, David, who performs this unholy census. What does this prove? Well, the fact that Samuel, which is all about the king's coming, ends with this act of sin on David's part. What does that prove? It proves that although David was a man after God's own heart, there's still a better king yet to come. It still proves that now uh, the truly anointed king is still in the future. So we'll do a, uh, one interpretive issue. Then I'm going to take a side note on the Davidic covenant. Then we'll do another interpretive issue. In uh, in Samuel, you see the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so, I, and I apologize, I don't have a slide for this, but this isn't that complex. What is the Holy Spirit doing in the book of Samuel? Some would say that it is, uh, the ministry of the Spirit is that of giving salvation, giving spiritual salvation. And then others say that it's empowerment for service to God. And we would go with the second view that it is empowerment for service to God. We don't want to try to um, read New Testament theology and New Testament workings backwards into the Old Testament necessarily. Um, it's empowerment for specific events. And it's not permanent. And how do we know this? 
There is one verse in the Bible that I don't like to sing without explaining it, and that is uh, from Psalm 51, where David prays, Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, I don't like to sing that when we sing Psalm 51 because I don't have a chance to explain that that doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. That doesn't mean that, that the Holy Spirit comes and goes depending on your obedience. What does that tell us, though? David is not saying, please don't remove my salvation. He's not saying, please don't remove the New Testament concept of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is, don't remove your blessing on my kingship. Don't remove all that God has done for him in terms of blessing him. And how do we know that that's the case? Because is there a king of Israel that the Holy Spirit did leave him? It's Saul. And so we would say that uh, we want to understand that the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Samuel is about empowerment for service. It's uh, don't read a New Testament uh, concept of the Holy Spirit into that. Now, I want to just talk to you about the Davidic covenant. And I, basically, I'm just going to tell the story because this is so very important to us. The very first hint of a coming covenant with a human king of Israel it comes in the prayer of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2.10. And embedded in her prayer is a prophecy that the Lord will, quote, give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. Why is this important? Because when Hannah prayed that prayer, Israel didn't have a king. Israel had never had a king. But prophetically, she asked God to give strength to his king. And as Israel demanded a king in 1 Samuel 8 verse 20, we talked about that last time. They're fulfilling the prophecy of Deuteronomy 17, 14, which they demanded a king like all the nations. They didn't heed the admonition of Deuteronomy 17, 15 to set a king over them whom the Lord would choose. They didn't do that. They, they gave the criteria they wanted to choose. They wanted a king like uh, designed after the sinful nations around them. So because of their sin, God initially gave Israel a king like they wanted, one who could be a warrior, one who could fight their battles for them. This is the concept of the warrior king. This king, though, Saul, he didn't stay true to the Lord. First Samuel 13, 13 and 14, Samuel tells Saul that because he has not obeyed the Lord, his kingdom will be taken from him and given to a man after God's heart. And so Samuel confirms this in 1 Samuel 15 when he tells Saul that the Lord had rejected him as king over Israel. And even then, while Samuel was still grieving the failure of Saul, the Lord instructed him to go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem. And he said to him, I have selected a king for myself among his sons. And now for the very first time, we see God's sovereign choice of a king. This is God alone making the choice, not in response to sinful demands, but an unlikely king. You remember the story from 1 Samuel 16. He was a boy who was, quote, ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. What does that mean? It means he was a teenager with acne. He was a young kid. He was good looking. You could see his potential. In the same verse, the Lord instructed Samuel to anoint this boy, David, and God said, for this is he. This is the king. Later on, of course, Saul's son, Jonathan, now very close friends with David, he confirmed the destiny of David as the Lord's chosen king and even asked for mercy on his own house. He said, even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, even Jonathan, the son of the current king, said, you are the true king. 
And that happened in 1 Samuel 20. So after receiving the throne of Israel, and, and of course David uh, was constantly fighting off Israel's enemies, and not only that, but expanding territory a little bit by pushing back into territory that was rightly theirs, David was filled in his heart with a desire to do something for God. And what he wanted to do was build a temple. That was a deep yearning in his heart. But the Lord told David that his son will build the temple. And that could have been a disappointment, I'm sure, to David. But then he gets something infinitely better. 2 Samuel 7, verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So God said, you're not going to build my, my house. I'm going to build your house. I'm going to build the house of David. And of course, we know, um, we talked about that last week. Obviously, that promise in Second Samuel Seven earlier, when God tells David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who will who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And now it gets a little complicated when he commits iniquity. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son, sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. And we talked about last time that this is clearly uh, what, what you call a near and far fulfillment of prophecy. The near fulfillment, of course, is in Solomon, in David's son. He would build the temple. His kingdom isn't going to be established forever. But along with this, you have the ultimate Messiah king spoken of here. And we get to this seeming difficulty When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. So at that point, obviously, if you stick with that translation, then we're going to say that that cannot be speaking of Christ, of course, because he's not going to commit iniquity. That speaks of Solomon, and that did, in fact, happen. Solomon was not the most most righteous of all kings. He was a great king, to be sure, but he had his issues. You can read the book of Ecclesiastes just to see that one of the things Solomon had issues with was trying everything in the world to see if it would satisfy him. That was an issue with him. But here's a little interesting thought. In Hebrew, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, may also be translated if he commits iniquity. Now we have a pointing to Christ in a way that uh, the Lord can say, I challenge a human king to not sin once in this lifetime. And is there a human king who has done that? Of course, that is the Lord Jesus Christ who will never be disciplined because he's never sinned. So either way you take it, if you translate it when, then we're speaking of Solomon. If you translate it if, it points to the fact that there's a human king coming who won't sin, who won't need the discipline of the Lord. So the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to give an eternal throne to David's son is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. He is called the son of David openly during his days on earth. And the ultimate consummation of the Davidic covenant uh, really is yet to be. But David, the man after God's own heart, is clearly the type. He's the example. He's the, the, the prototype. Solomon serves as, an, as a type as well. May, not quite as good as David, um, but he does serve as, as that type. A king of peace. Solomon never went to war. 
Uh, his very name means peace, and so he is a type of the Prince of Peace. Now, let me divert into another issue. Why is the Davidic covenant so very important? And I know we, we hit on this a lot, but the, what God does with Israel is paramount in Scripture because what God does with Israel tells us what God is going to do with us. Let me give you an example. If God tells Israel, you are chosen forever, what should that mean? It should mean they're chosen forever. Why is that important to us? Because the New Testament says you as believers in Christ are chosen forever. If Israel being chosen forever is somehow provisional and they can mess up enough to become unchosen, what does that say for you? I've told this story before, but I remember being a a little kid. I think I was maybe 12. And I asked my dad, who at the time believed that you could lose your salvation. I said, how do you you know? How do you know when you're close to losing your salvation? And the best answer he had, we were sitting at a round table. I still remember had an orange tablecloth. This nightmarish answer is burned into my head. And he took, I think it was a salt shaker, and he put it in the middle. He said, now... If you're obeying the Lord and doing everything that you're supposed to do, you're, you're right here in the middle. But as you, as you disobey more and more, you get closer to the edge. Now, what's the obvious question? How do you know where the edge is? How do I know? And his thought and the thought of every Arminian who believes that you can lose your salvation is don't risk it. Just stay close to the middle. Now, what do you call that? That's, that's not obedience out of love. That's legalism. That I will obey God in order to continue receiving his favor. Okay, huge digression. We don't believe that. When you are a child of the living God, you are a child of the living God. When you are the nation of the living God, you are the nation of the living God. The reason the Davidic covenant is so important is that if you have been brought up to believe that God is done with Israel or that the church is now Israel, and that you spiritualize that, uh, or even to say, as uh, as many belief systems say, that um, uh, New Jerusalem now speaks to the church, and the new heavens and the new earth is sort of amorphous to the church, and you get all this symbolism happening that makes the church, the Gentile church, paramount, and Israel off to the side. I've read theologies that use mocking terms. Why would God be concerned about, quote, some little piece of real estate in the Middle East, unquote. I have a theology in my office that says this. When you elevate the church to become Israel, you have fallen into, and this is not my term, this is a term by by theologians who have studied this, anti-Semitic theology that basically says God is done with the Jews. This is so well documented. I wish I had time to go through this, but it would bore you to tears if I started reading long quotes. Why is the Davidic covenant important? Because a Davidic king, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not coming to be king just over Ethiopia or king over some other country. He's coming first to be king over Israel. And Israel will be the capital country of, of the world. And I've often asked this question. I have friends who, who, who are in that belief system of, of uh, making Scripture now into something that's very metaphorical. 
Uh, the New Jerusalem is really the church and, and Israel is really the church and, and all the different varieties. And none of them can agree, by the way, because it's all made up. But I ask them, do you believe that someday there will be a literal New Jerusalem? Well, yeah, probably. Because there is going to be a literal new heavens and new earth. Okay, so there's a, there's a New Jerusalem, an actual city. Do you believe this? And if they say yes, okay, if you're God, what nation would you put New Jerusalem in? Which one? What, what are you going to put? Oh, hey, look at that. I think we'll put New Jerusalem in France. Eh, that makes no sense. New Jerusalem proves that there's an Israel, and the Davidic covenant proves that Israel will go on perpetually. And I don't have to prove this to you because when you're in the millennial kingdom and all the nations, as Zechariah 14 says, are traveling to a newer Jerusalem, not new Jerusalem yet, you'll go, hmm, Jerusalem's still here. It's been bombed out of existence several times in history. Is going to be again, by the way, uh, according to the book of Revelation. It's going to split in three pieces before, in Revelation 16 says this, before Christ returns, and then he's going to rebuild it. Over and over and over again, you're going to see it. I'm going to be talking about this tonight uh, exclusively. The Davidic covenant says there will be a king sitting on a throne. That throne is in the temple of God. That temple of God is in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in Israel. Why do we care? Because we have a God that 4,000 years ago made a promise to an old man named Abraham, that I will form a nation from you and I will bless the rest of the nations of the earth through you forever. So we hang on to that because it is indicative. If God can take a nation, is there, a, is there another people on earth that you can point to that's 3,500 years old and still has an active government today? No, that's miraculous. Now the Israel of today is not the Israel of the future. It's not saved Israel. That's coming down the road. But if God can, through millennia, hang on to a country, do you think that when Jesus said that no one will snatch you out of my hand, that he can do that? I love reading about Israel, and I hope you do too, because it gives me confidence that when my heart is fluttering and when my last breath is happening and when my eyes are going dark and when I know that that I'm holding a hand that is, is my wife's or one of my children that the next hand I'm going to hold is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have confidence in this because the Bible is filled with God as a promise keeper, a covenant keeper. So from here on out, when you read the Davidic covenant, read into it. If God keeps a promise that big, he can keep me and he can keep me safe. So that's why the Davidic covenant should mean something to you. Plus, there is the really cool factor. The really cool factor says that Jesus Christ is going to return to be like David only just times a million. He will be the warrior king. He will be the king who who meets out perfect justice, who meets out perfect mercy. You realize there's a day coming, according to Zechariah 14, that you will be able to travel to greet your king, the Lord Jesus Christ, in person. I, I can't wrap my mind around that. But that is coming. So when you read the Davidic covenant, I I hope for the rest of your life, you read it with a little bit of a wow factor. That our God is a promise keeping God. There's the Davidic covenant. Now, we, we talked about this last time. We'll switch over to another issue here. 
God promises a king all the way back in Deuteronomy 17. I'm going to choose a king for you. And let me just read this to you. It's in Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse, I believe, 17. Or maybe earlier. Yeah, uh, 14, rather. Deuteronomy 17, 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. This is to be a godly king. Verse 18, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. Did you catch that? The first assignment of a new king of Israel is to sit down and copy the law of God by hand himself. Verse 19, And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart, his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Okay, this is pretty positive. This is, you're going to be in the land and you may choose a king whom the Lord chooses. That's kind of the way the phrasing goes. And so, but then you get to 1 Samuel 8, verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel. And then verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Okay, so there's the interpretive issue. Which one is it? God said, you may choose the king I choose. And now they're saying, we want to choose a king. What's the difference? Well, let's, let's walk through this. There are basically four major views of this uh, supposed problem. Uh, the first one we can mark off pretty easily. Uh, there's one, one view that says, ah, the biblical text doesn't care one way or another. It's not that big of a deal. I think if it's in the Bible, it's always a big deal. It's there for a reason. Uh, So we'll mark that one off. The second one says that the biblical text tends to be negative. That, uh, you know, the Old Testament tends to show Israel in the worst light possible. Okay, well, let's let's talk about this for a while. We're going to stay on that one. The biblical text tends to be negative. This links us all the way back to Judges chapter 21 that says there was no king in the land and everyone did as they pleased. The kingship was coming to replace the judges uh, with a human dynasty. That was what was supposed to happen. Um, In fact, David would cling to this promise even in the midst of disaster in his life. Um, This is one of the great themes of the Old Testament. Man is unfaithful, but God is faithful. And so when you have 1 Samuel 8 through 12 you have this literal establishment of a kingship. And that's a good thing overall. But with Saul, who was almost instantly a failure, this is not God choosing this king. 
It is simply God validating the type of king that Israel wanted to choose without his help. Now, yes, you, you can see that, that God chose Saul, but he didn't choose Saul as a man after his own heart. He chose Saul for purely outward reasons. He's a king like all the other nations. So, it is, this, is this just the fact that the biblical text tends to be negative? There is an element of truth to that. When you get to the Old Testament, you are meant to, you get to the very end, the last word in Hebrew in the Old Testament is the word curse. It's that he will strike the land with a curse. You're meant to get to the Old Testament and go, that's a sorry ending. I mean, can you imagine being an Old Testament Jew and all you have is the Old Testament? You know, what a terrible ending. What is it meant to do? It's meant to make you say there needs to be more. There must be more. And there is more, of course. You turn the page and you see who? The Lord Jesus Christ coming to fulfill all that. So there is, a, there is an element of truth to the negativity that the Old Testament presents. It is ultimately God's will to establish a human kingship, but that doesn't mean that everything Israel does is also right, is also positive. Some have argued, well, God did choose the king. He said it'll be, he'll be from the tribe of Benjamin, and they chose Saul. But let me ask you this. Do you, could you see the attitude difference if instead of, we want a king just like the nations around us, wah, 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 you can hear the whining in their voices. Can you see the difference if they said to Samuel, would you, Samuel, inquire of Yahweh if it might be his will at this time to establish a king over us? And if it is, is his will, would you inquire as to who would be a king after his own heart? You see the difference? Israel wanted a king kind of like the way we tend to vote for president. We want to vote for a president that's going to give us stuff. And Israel needed to have a king that would honor God, not just honor man. And so instead of that, would you, Samuel, inquire of Yahweh as to whether this is the time for the king and, and would he choose a king after his own heart? Instead, they say, we want a king now, Wine, wine, wine. Kingship was already God's will, but they didn't inquire as to his timing. They didn't inquire to his choice. They just came with a demand. So the third view is that it's the proper desire, but the wrong motive and the wrong timing. The proper desire and the wrong motive and the wrong timing, and and we would go with that view as being the best view. It is the right desire. Israel should want a king. We should want a king. It's just not the right time. It's not the right man. So the text isn't negative about the concept of kingship for Israel, just negative about the way that Israel went about it. Now, there's a, there's a whole other issue happening here, and this is beautiful. There, when there's a tension in Scripture, don't see that as a problem. God meant for there to be a tension. And what is the tension that's happening here? The, the text is brilliant in keeping these truths, these truths in tension. God has ordained that his will is a king for Israel, but his will is also going to be accomplished through imperfect people, imperfect means. And these two pull at one another. They pull. What does this make us do? It makes you read through the Old Testament and you say, man, Saul started off pretty good. He was tall. He was big. He was handsome. 
But then he utterly failed. David started off pretty good. And the last record we have of David is him putting out this sinful census after 40 years of of rule. Solomon starts off pretty good. But then he goes haywire. You remember we just read that, that the king of Israel shall not take for himself many wives. How about 700? And so Solomon ends up very much as a failed king. Um, Rehoboam, his son. Rehoboam only lasts 24 months before his failure leads to the split of the kingdom into the northern and the southern kingdom. And so as you read through the kings, you go, oh, that was close. Oh, that was close. Oh, that was close. And when you get through 20 kings or so, both for Israel and for Judah, and they all ultimately fail at some level, you, you get to the end of the kings and you go, this is crazy. This will never work. We need what? A sinless king. And so that continues to just be the tension that this text is, is brilliant at, um, at putting forward to us. Saul was handsome. He was tall. On the outside, he looked like a king. Why did they want a big, strong king? All combat was hand-to-hand combat. And so if your king was the guy out front, he wasn't sitting in the White House pushing buttons. He was the guy who was supposed to lead the charge. And if your king is a head taller than all the enemy, that's going to be intimidating to them. And so what happened when the Philistines brought out their champion, Goliath? In essence, the king of the Philistines because he was the biggest. What did Saul do? Well, he said, man, we got to find somebody to fight this guy. Saul was the biggest one. He was the obvious choice. He was in the prime of life. He was at the strongest time physically of his life. This is what Israel wanted. They wanted the king to go fight their battles. And when he had the chance, I I imagine they're all looking at him. He's all, hey, don't look at me. That guy's huge. And then a little kid comes along, bringing food to his brothers who scold him for coming up to to the battle lines. What are you doing here? And David walks around. Who's that big bozo out there who keeps yelling at us? And they tell him. And David says, I will take him on. The Lord has protected me before. And he takes on this giant with a sling, a sling and a stone. David and Goliath is not the story of how to slay the Goliaths in your life. David and Goliath drips with theology and it answers the question, whose God is God? That's what David Goliath is about. Who does God use? Saul? Big, tall, handsome warrior? Or David, little kid with acne, bringing food to his brothers? Does God use what is outward or does God use what is inward? Does God want a king who will trust in himself or a king who will trust in him? David's faith is very, very clear when he goes to meet Goliath on the field of battle And he says, you come to me with a sword and a spear that I come to you in the name of the Lord our God. And he predicts that you will die at my hand this day. And he does. Goliath is dead. So who is Israel's true king? God is. Who should be the human king? The one who trusts God. The one who trusts God instead. What happened with Saul? This is kind of an interpretive issue, but I'm just going to I'm not going to tell it like that. First Samuel 19. We have this odd episode. 
and we wonder about it. 1 Samuel 19, verse 18. And remember, by now, the prophet Samuel has already told Saul, the kingdom is taken out of your hand. It's out of your hand. 1 Samuel 19, verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth. In other words, Saul is going after David to kill him. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. What does it mean here that they prophesied? It just means they're speaking words that God gives them. And we don't do that today because we have the word of God. When it was told Saul, he and other messengers, and they also he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Seku, and he said, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah. But what is he going to do? He's going there to try to kill David. And at that point, this is where this odd thing happens. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? So apparently... The prophesying that was happening also included these, these prophets stripping off their clothes. Now, people in the charismatic church love this. They're like, wow, this is great. You know, this is the new work of the Spirit. Leave your clothes at the door. And, and they'll take this in all the weird ways. People were saying, oh, Saul must be the true king. He's among the prophets. You remember, though, Samuel's already said the kingdom is taken from you. What is actually happening here? This weird behavior where he is associated with the prophets. A prophet is always a spokesman for God. Samuel has trained other prophets to take the message given by Samuel, given to Samuel by Yahweh to preach this message to others. The context here is that Saul is seeking David to kill him. The Spirit of God comes upon Saul, forcing him to join the other prophets. This wasn't Saul's choice. Saul took off all of his outer garments. Why is that important? Because that was about the most shameful thing you could do. It was to say, I am being shamed. God was humiliating him. The Spirit of God controlling him, not only was speaking words of God through him, but was humiliating him. The outer garments represented very much his, his kingship. He would have had a robe of a king. He would have had some sort of crown. He would have had garments that said, I'm the king. And what is he doing when the Spirit of God comes upon him? He is stripping off the garments of the king because God is taking it away from him and ironically making him say the words of his own rejection. And by joining the other prophets, it's that Saul is given a direct message from God. Saul is forced to join with those who say, your kingship is taken from you. I mean, imagine that. It's like being before a judge and the judge somehow forces you to say, I deserve to be executed for my crimes. Please do it now. And that's what he forces him to do. So 
we don't want to be confused by that at all. Saul is not somehow given a, a wonderful power. It's not a wonderful thing. It is God forcing him to speak his own condemnation and to strip off the, the outer trappings of a king. What does that tell us? It makes David look a lot better, doesn't it? And then when David fails, David makes Christ look a lot better. So you have in the Old Testament this continual comparison to where you, you finally just, you get to the end of all the kings and you say, what an utter failure. We must have a king who will rule in righteousness. So there we are, Davidic covenant. We finished a little early. Does anybody have any questions? And in fact, we have enough time. You can ask me questions about anything. We can do that. That was an abrupt ending, but I'm not preaching, so I don't care. <laughs> questions? Yeah, David. Okay. Is the Old Testament salvation, is that the same type of salvation we're talking about? Our salvation? Because you read the Psalms, the hymns of the saints against any of these. Do they have to worry about their salvation, Israel, as we do today, that are non Christians? How does that work? What a tremendous question. I love this. We have. Uh, we, David, how long have you been in the Lord? Like a year now? Yeah, maybe. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, maybe. That's awesome. Okay. Uh, uh, the word salvation is like the word bow in the Bible. All right? How many uses for the word bow can we think of? Tie a bow. Uh, take a bow. Right? The bow. So you have to interpret both by uh, context, by covenant, and by um, whether you're talking about national issues or whether you're talking about an individual issue so let's talk about spiritual salvation first what spiritual salvation is being guaranteed that our sins are forgiven and that god will save us and that we'll spend eternity with him so let's talk about that um were people in the old testament saved differently than we are now no exactly the same in fact i could, i would point you to uh, genesis fifteen six. And let's just look at that. This is our, our classic understanding. How was Abraham saved? Genesis fifteen six. After being given the Abrahamic covenant for the second time, these promises, verse 5, he brought them outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be, verse 6, and he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. What is that? Believe, faith. Abraham had faith in God. It was counted, credited to him as righteousness. Now, why would we say credited? Eh, there's, a couple of, there's a couple of ways to explain this. First of all, had Christ died yet? In, in time and space, no. So... Abraham receives salvation on credit that there will be a Savior who comes to pay for his sins. Would we say that our salvation is credited to us or our righteousness is credited to us? Not exactly because Christ has already paid for our sins. But there's a huge parallel. Turn over to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Remember, we're just talking about spiritual salvation right now. Romans 5. Wrong book of the Bible. Okay, there we go. Romans. <clears throat> Romans 5, verse 8. 
But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we've talked about this a lot. Um, it, it means that we are chosen for salvation. The price was paid for our sins before we were ever even born. But now, turn over to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, at the very end, and this is going to sound a lot like Genesis fifteen six. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Abraham, it was credited to him as righteousness. We have what we would call theologically imputed righteousness. You're not actually righteous yet. You will be. But you have credited righteousness, imputed righteousness. When God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. In the New Testament, we understand this. How do you express your love as one who has been spiritually saved? If Jesus said, if you love me, do what? Obey my commandments. In the Old Testament, God said, if you love me, do what? Obey my commandments. It's just different sets of commandments. In the Old Testament, it is the law of Moses. That, has, that expired at the cross. It's done. That's a, that was a law for Israel and all who would join Israel. We are now under the law of Christ that is for all who would believe on Christ. So spiritual salvation always has been by faith and it always requires a sacrifice. Why did the animal sacrifices have to happen over and over again? Because they were insufficient. They, they were a picture. They were insufficient. And sacrifice didn't just start with the law of Moses. It goes all the way back to, to Abel offering the sacrifice. And it goes before that. God offering the sacrifice on behalf of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He killed animals to cover them with skins, to cover Adam and Eve with skins. What what was the significance of that? God was symbolically covering their sin by covering their bodies. He was also covering their sin temporarily by slaying these animals in front of them. It's the first time death uh, enters into the world. So spiritual salvation is the same across the board. Okay, now let's talk about, you didn't know this was such a landmine. Sorry, David. Now, let's talk about um, salvation in the Old Testament in a more temporal sense. Turn to the book of Habakkuk. And it's the two pages in your Bible that are stuck together between Nahum and Zephaniah. Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, and while you're finding that, I'm going to find a, another reference as well. Habakkuk chapter 2, context of Habakkuk. Habakkuk has been complaining, he's the prophet of God, he has been complaining that, you know, there's injustice. In the southern kingdom of Judah, the, the leaders of Jerusalem, this is chapter 1, the leaders of Jerusalem are, are corrupt. They're, they're not helping the poor like they're supposed to. And I'm not talking about social programs like we have in America that, that fail and don't work. I'm talking about the actual ways of helping the poor that actually worked from the law of Moses. They're not doing that. They're, they're, they're filled with power. Uh, they, they're, they're just there for themselves. And you go, huh, sounds like this guy's been to America. And 
Habakkuk is complaining to the Lord. And God says, you know, you're right. I think I'm going to send the Chaldeans to destroy Judah and to utterly lay waste to the land. The end of Habakkuk tells us how Habakkuk responded when God told him that. He said in verse 16 of chapter 3, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And what is that saying? His knees went weak. Well, hang on a minute, God. I was just saying do something with these leaders. I wasn't saying destroy our whole nation. And he got physically sick. Now by faith, he waits for trouble to come upon Babylon, which it will. Okay, small problem here. The Chaldeans, this is a fierce warrior people that basically took over the Babylonian Empire. So when you say Babylonians and Chaldeans, it's essentially the same. They were coming. Chapter 1 says that they're a, verse 6, they're a bitter and hasty nation who marched the breadth of the earth, seizing dwellings not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Verse 9, they all come for violence, all their faces up forward. They gather captives like sand. What is the problem here? The Chaldeans are coming. God has already decreed this. In Israel, there are people who have trusted God, who have experienced internal reality of genuine faith in God. It's not their sin that's bringing the Chaldeans on them. It's not their sin that's bringing the judgment of God on the nation as a whole. There are many that have been faithful. They've offered their sacrifices by faith. They have prayed to God out of a love for God. They have, as Psalm 51 says, a new spirit within them, not to the level that we would experience in the New Testament, but they have a genuine love for and, 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 and a heart for God. What's going to happen to them? Now look at chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, meaning the one who is, who is rebellious. But look at the second half. But the righteous shall live by his faith. I read an entire master's thesis on that last verse once. It was as dry as dust. But I was looking for something and, and this guy made his point. His name was uh, Aaron Tresham. And he proved that in this case and in many other cases like it in the Old Testament, when he says the righteous shall live by faith, what do we think of? We're New Testament believers. Well, you know, faith in God. We think internal. All this means is that if you have trusted Christ, Rather, if you've trusted God as your, as your Savior and you are a true believer, when the Chaldeans come, you will survive. You will live. And this is consistent with God. How is it that when the Chaldeans come and they're slaying people left and right, how is it that God could choose that the unfaithful are slain and that those who are faithful live? Because he's God. Now, they're taken off as captives, but they do live. To David's point, going to the book of Psalms, David often says, uh, you are the God of my salvation. 
we don't want to read into that, oh, he always means he's the God who forgives me of my sin. No, in David's case, it means you're the God that protects me from my enemies, where I will actually live. Uh, Psalm 3, he's surrounded by 10,000s of, of enemies. And, and uh, then in Psalm 4, same situation. He says, I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. In the Old Testament, one of, the, one of the tests of God's faithfulness was, will I survive when I'm surrounded by people who want to kill me? It's a very, very concrete test. Now, the Apostle Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 three or four times in the New Testament. He quotes it once in Galatians, maybe twice, a couple times in Romans. He does not change the meaning. He adds a layer to the meaning. And that is that the righteous will live by faith, meaning you cannot live eternally in God's kingdom unless you come to Christ by faith, not by works. You see the difference? It's not, it's not a contradiction. It is layering on top. And in fact, it's the same. Is there any enemy that can actually destroy you? No, there isn't. What does that mean? It means that the righteous shall live by faith. So, um, do Christians die when bad things are happening because of God's judgment? Yeah, sometimes. Are they okay with that? Every single one of them are. I guarantee you. You see a hailstone coming? If you're a, if you're a, 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 a tribulation saint and you've come to faith in Christ, there are some who say that no, none of them will die in the judgments in the great tribulation. I don't know one way or another. But you see a hailstone coming going, hey, that's not fair. Boom. And you're in heaven going, hey, this is great. This is okay. So, how are we saved from our sins? By faith. That has always been exactly the same. The New Testament didn't change that. New Testament just clarified it. So, does that make sense? (laughs) David's like, I'm never asking another question again. Okay, that was an 11-minute answer. Sorry about that. Any other questions? Yes, Darla. You want to make sure that the Lord is in front of you? So the, the, the way we make sure that... Okay. That, yeah, that sounds like something, yeah, that sounds like something maybe you hear from a pulpit. You want to make sure that the Lord is in front of you. Um, that's, that's more of a description. I, I would rather say I want to make sure I am praying by faith with a confessed heart. The, the first thing I'm going to do, you all have, you know the Acts model of prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I prefer cats. Confession first. And then you're, you're praying with a pure heart. Um, the phrases like that were very popular uh, you know, a while back, uh, trying to personify God. Make sure the Lord is in front of you. Well, I'm not as sure what that means. You know, like, are you supposed to let go and let God or hang on to Jesus? Uh, which one is it? So all those kind of catchphrases were a substitute for just teaching what the Bible says, um, an attempt to try to get truth into an, an encapsulated form, which it's not. You can't, it, we don't have a pamphlet. We have a Bible. And it's complex. So I would say the best way to use that phrase um, to have the Lord before you is to come with a confessed heart because he'll, he, he listens to those prayers, prayers of humility. 
You can discard that one. And, and, and Darla, I already know the Lord answers your prayers because I know some things you've prayed for for me that have come true, and I thank you for that. Any other questions? We have two minutes. Don't go deep. <laughs> All right. Any questions specific to the Davidic covenant? I've already told you everything I know, so I don't know what else I'm going to say. Okay, let me ask you a question. Have you this morning seen the faithfulness of God? Have you seen his consistency? Have you seen the brilliance of his plan? I hope you have. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for uh, this time that we've had together. A little bit unusual time here. But Lord, every reading through our Bibles just astounds us all the more that you were consistent, you were faithful. And that while when we stand before you in glory, it will be the most amazing thing ever. In a sense, it shouldn't surprise us. This is what you've always said will happen. You've always said that those whom you foreknew will be glorified. And so when you consummate our salvation, when you complete the good work that you began in us, when you complete that process of making us like Christ, may we be in awe, may we give you glory, may we give you honor. And Lord, more importantly, may we do that now by faith. When sin still besets us, when we still have a choice every day to follow ourselves or follow Christ, let us follow Christ and be in perfect line with the great redemptive plan of God upon which you have placed us with your grace and your kindness. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.